and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors chat about their creative process, how they write and what inspires them. I'm Katie Brand and today I'm joined down the line by a novelist, poet and artist. He's written many books, including The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which brought him international success, a shelf full of awards and became an acclaimed stage play. His new novel, The Porpoise, spans modern and ancient times with influences including the epic tale of Pericles. It is, of course, Mark Haddon. Mark, hello and welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. I have loved reading your book, The Porpoise, which we shall talk about more as we go on. As you may or may not know, the backbone of this podcast is that a handful of objects are brought in by the authors and these are things that have inspired them in their creative process. And so... When we asked you, Mark, you said that despite being surrounded by a variety of interesting objects, none of them sparked stories in the way that physical pictures did, which is why you've chosen an oil painting, a solar system wall chart, a framed postcard and an etching by David Hockney. We'll find out why you chose those in a moment. But first, I'd love to have a synopsis from you, Mark, if possible, of your new book, The Porpoise, which I have absolutely loved reading. I've been mulling over for a long time the idea of adapting a Shakespeare play into a novel. It seemed too arrogant to take one of the famous plays, uh, so I realised maybe I could take one of the, shall we say, the slightly rubbish plays. Uh, (laughs) And he wrote Pericles with the best will in the world. It's not not great Shakespeare. He co-wrote it with a guy called George Wilkins, who was a one-time playwright. And I thought if I took on Pericles, it doesn't, I'm not matching up to a work of genius. I can have a good wrestle with it. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very loose adaptation of the story of Pericles. And it was inspired by the fact that at the beginning of the play, there was a young woman who's a princess, uh, the daughter of the king of Antioch. In the play, it says they're having an incestuous relationship. Of course, it's, you know, it's rape, it's sexual abuse. She's a young girl. In the play, she's just used as a springboard to sort of get the whole story going. Pericles, the young prince, comes along, wants a hand in marriage, is given a riddle he has to solve. And the riddle is the fact that there is this relationship going on between daughter and father. He solves it and then he thinks, I'm in trouble now, aren't I? Because I've, 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 I've got this secret. So he goes on the run around the Mediterranean. And that is the play. It's the fun he has on his travels. And this poor woman is just abandoned. And I decided that I wanted a writer version of Pericles, which gave this woman a name, a voice and and some agency. If that sounds a little bit serious, at the same time, I've managed to squeeze in uh, time travel, mm-hmm. pirates, uh, a bit of semi-naked wrestling, <laughs> um, several shipwrecks. But it spans the modern day back to the sort of ancient Greek times. You overlay different times sort of on top of each other, like semi-permeable membranes. They kind of reach through the mists of time to each other in some respects. Some of these stories seem very, very distant to us, very dusty and dry. And one of the reasons I wanted to occupy both the present day and this sort of semi-mythical past, a kind of Shakespearean past, where it's a sort of make-it-up-as-you-go-along kind of past, was to say that I wanted it to feel immediate. I wanted to feel this is a story on one level, about abuse, about wealth, about how we allow powerful people to keep secrets. But I wanted to say we've been telling this story for a long time. Yes, and I think that's been a theme that a lot of authors are playing with at the moment. I, I interviewed Pat Barker about The Silence of the Girls and similarly she felt that by giving the women a chance to talk about their experience, and which you do too in The Porpoise, 
it, it just brings the experience alive. I think there's another thing to talk to what Pat Barker's doing, what Daisy Johnson's doing, what a lot of people are doing now, reaching back into that past. Yes, there's a chance to, to fill in the holes, to give women a voice, to sort of put them back in, in the place from which they've been dispossessed. But... If you go back to that mythic past, you have a freedom to play with big ideas. If you're me, for example, if you're a middle-aged, straight, white male from, from Northampton, born in 1962, <laughs> it's quite hard to deal with some of those big stories without treading on other people's cultural toes, as it were. Mm. It's quite hard for me to talk about being a refugee. It's quite hard for me to talk about the experience of living through a war. So, yeah, it's giving, it's giving a voice to women, but it's, all, it's also giving a bigger voice to me as well, because I can talk about what I want to talk about with no restrictions. But I think if anyone's an artist or a great writer, then I guess that sort of empathy and compassion you you want to find vessels that you can put it into yes i feel the novel is a really um, impressive capacious machine that can do anything mm. but if i'm just writing contemporary realism about people like me these days it feels slightly disappointing i said it's like having the M millennium falcon and driving it to sainsbury's and back <laughs> you, you've got this whole ray of knobs levers and dials and you think why why aren't i using these we can go anywhere we can do anything well, talking of going to any planet at any time, let's move to your first object that you've brought along, which is a picture of a poster of the solar system. And I believe you had this on your wall when you were a young boy. Is that right? The chart. I mean, I've, I've even got the little sort of uh, card uh, from the back of a packet of Weetabix by means of which you got it. It's about a sort of yard and a half by a yard. And it, it hung on my bedroom wall, on that wood chip wallpaper that I would sort of pick the chips out of as I was falling falling asleep. And it was a really important picture for me. It's quite hard to explain why now. But let me let me tell you what the picture's like. It's, it's as far as a map of the solar system goes, it's absolutely dreadful. The sun is a <laughs> huge glowing fried egg on the left-hand side. The scale is completely wrong. Um, the planets are sort of zooming round it on different coloured orbit lines. So there's the Earth on a white line, Mars on a red line, Jupiter on a purple line they're all crammed up against each other so crammed up that you can't tell which planet has which moon frankly mm -hmm. and there are stars in the background that bear no relation to the actual stars in the sky <laughs> at all they're just random white dots and yet this was it was a kind of window in the wall of my room I was quite an unhappy and anxious child but I had a real sense that on the verge of sleep I could pass through this rectangle into a different if different place hmm. i have a, a, a really vivid memory of on the verge of sleep scales somehow slipping and changing and i could somehow float through the membrane into that picture and be in some kind of some kind of spaceship out there Wow. Uh, and and I, you remember that very vividly from when you were eight or nine years old. Very, very, of, very vividly, yes. That sense of, is it, what is it, the word liminal? Or I'm not sure, that, that moment between sleep and waking where yeah. you're not sure if you're dreaming or and you would sort of go into this poster and feel free or creative or relaxed or what was the feeling? It was just a sense that there was another place. All of us, in in various ways, we have a sense of the other place, don't we? For some mm. people, it's kind of religious. Some people, it's spiritual. And I think ever since, this is the way I've seen pictures. This is the way that pictures are important to me. They're always 
a, a portal to another place. Even if it's an abstract painting I love, I do have a sense that it's a surface, but it's a surface you can pass through into somewhere else. Was it that the solar system was the only one that Weetabix made available or did you specifically choose it because you were already interested in astronomy and planets and all of that sort of stuff? I was already interested in almost anything scientific. I read very few picture books and very few books of fiction when I was a kid, but I read a lot, a lot about science. It wasn't a very bookish household. Mm. And it wasn't until I was 14, 15, 16 that I began to realise that science in the modern world was too difficult for me to understand beyond a certain level, but that I could get those similar things from literature. Mm. I remember reading an anthology of poems and Mm. I'd never really read what we might call grown-up poetry before. And it really set off fireworks inside my head. And that same void opened up, like inside the solar system wall chart. I had a sense of something enormous on the other side of that veil. Mm. In that sense, you could pass through that veil into that larger, mysterious place. Do you think this early love of the metaphysical and the mystery the mystery of the universe and so on did you consciously bring that out in the porpoise? I tell you where, where it, it was really important for me mm-hmm. when I was writing Curious Incident I knew that I had a terrible terrible tendency to deliver lectures in anything I was writing and I thought I will allow myself to do it in Curious Incident because I think Christopher would do something similar but I'll put it all in tiny chapters between the narrative chapters so I can hermetically wall them off. And they can be, instead of me giving a lecture, they will be Christopher giving a lecture. Mm. And it won't infect the narrative. And I think that book enabled me to put that need of mine to rest. And Mm. that in the porpoise, that sense of overlaying, that sense of veil, is less to do with my interest in science than my than my interest in stories. The sense that that there is a, that veil in science, there is that surface of the solar system um, poster, but it's there all the time. It's all the time in writing as well. So let's move on to your next object, talking about various stories and the juxtaposition of stories. This is uh, the cover of a book of your short stories collection, The Pier Falls, and this is a picture of a postcard from the 1970s of Brighton. So um, tell us why you've brought this in. This is the postcard which was found by Suzanne Dean, who is a wonderful, wonderful book designer. She wanted to get an image of Brighton in 1970 because that is where the title story of the Pier Force is set. And when the book was published, she, she got the postcard itself framed and gave it to me as a gift. The other link is that because it's an actual postcard from Brighton from 1970, it takes me straight back to the holidays which inspired the story itself. Every year when my sister and I were kids, we'd go on one sort of Mediterranean holiday uh, with our parents to a resort somewhere where we'd be sort of bombing in the pool and we'd be eating prawn cocktail and Black Forest Gatto and there'd be a rainy day and you'd play snooker in the games room and then everyone would get some terrible tummy bug for three days. It was one of the <laughs> classics of 70s holidays. And for another week every year, we'd join our paternal grandparents in a boarding house in Brighton for a good old-fashioned English working-class holiday. You know, we'd, we'd ride on the ghost train, we'd play crazy golf, we'd sit on the miniature train and take a ride along to Hove and go to the Dolvinarium. Mm-hmm. For years, I tried to write about these holidays, but my memory is poor and there were many, many gaps and I felt I couldn't do them justice. 
Um, so I just left it on one side. I also felt that what I was writing was a bit twee and a bit sentimental. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think what happened one day was in a fit of rage at my inability to turn this material into something that worked. I just imagined instead of recreating the memories, just destroying them instead. Instead of trying to bring the pier to life again in all its vivid detail, I thought, you know what? Let's have the pier fall down and kill lots of people. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was one of those rare moments of complete revelation in which I realised that if you made the pier fall down, it would not be trite or sentimental or twee anymore. And that on paper, to destroy something, you need to go into the same level of loving detail that you do when you recreate something from your memory. So I was able to use all the details I remember from the taste of candy floss and the smell of hot dogs to to the way that paint blisters on the balustrade rails on the prom and you can see all the colours from about 70 years back in different layers underneath it. I could use all those details at the same time as telling this story of, of, of death and destruction. Um, now, I know that you are a highly accomplished artist um, as well as a writer. Um, you mentioned the postcard with the, that led to, the sort of unlocked somehow mm. the, this desire to write about your holidays in Brighton in the Pier Falls. Did, do you often find that, that a piece of art or something visual will inspire you or help unlock something in your writing? It happens the other way around. If, I, if I'm writing a story, then I do want the images that go with it. My father was an architect, so the images I grew up with were, on the one hand, plans, architectural plans, and <laughs> on the other hand, copies of the RIBA magazine, the Royal Institute of British Architects magazine. That's one of my basic languages that I picked up as a child. So I have never written a scene without being able to give you a very accurate description of where it's set. I could, in most cases, I could give you a floor plan as well, and I could often give you a map of the surrounding area. And that detail all, often never appears in, in the writing itself. I can't, as some writers can do, have a free-floating scene which is just ideas, which is just dialogue. It's got to be nailed down. It's got to happen in a, a specific room that I can see. There is a very strong sense of place yeah. uh, all the time uh, throughout the book, even when we're in far-flung mm. places. And I think one of the most interesting things, one of the most sort of thrilling, electrifying moments in the book for me is where we first slip from the modern day back into ancient Greek times and we're on a boat that somehow sails through the veil of time, mm. I just found that very exciting. It's almost transgressive for things to not be there anymore that are there on a map. There's something so permanent about a map. It's reassuring. So to start messing about with it feels very unsettling. It's still an image which gives me a, a, a pleasantly queasy frisson. The, mm. the idea of sailing down a coast and realising that suddenly some of the towns are missing. Yes. And all, yes. all you can see is little encampments and smoke. And then underneath the, the boat, you realise that the water's cleaner. There's more fish than there used to be. Mm. And then you turn dials on the radio and all the wave bands have gone blank. Mm. It's just one of those images you stumble on and you think, yes, oh, that smells exactly right. I need to use that. Yes, and I'm glad you did. Now, you used to be an illustrator and a cartoonist as well. Do you think that feeds into this very strong visual sense? Do you, when you say, when you write something, you, you want the pictures, do you mean sometimes you even want to sketch them? Well, I did do uh, illustrations for the Pier Falls, mm. 
And of course, Curious Incident had pictures as well, done as it were with the hand of Christopher, as if he had illustrated his own book. Mm. I guess even if they're not there, then everything I've written has pictures. It just sometimes the reader gets them and, and sometimes the reader doesn't. Mm. And your next object is uh, an image called A Black Cat Leaping by David Hockney. But it's not just for listeners. It's not the sort of bright blue, extraordinary visualisation of moving water in a water, in a swimming pool in LA that many people might associate with Hockney or big bright colours from Yorkshire. This is a very sedate black and white etching of a black cat jumping at a man or a boy that's just sort of sat and is about to take it. As far as I can see, quite relaxed with his hands in his lap. But it has all that sort of visual movement, but sort of slight menace that you, you sometimes get with David Hockney. But what made you bring this in? I actually bought this picture. It is an, it's an etching by David Hockney. It's unsigned, so I got it cheap, you know, bar- mm-hmm. bargain bargain boot sale. Um, <laughs> and I got it for several several interwoven reasons. One, I love early Hockney. His draftsmanship is amazing. Before he started getting a bit sentimental and a bit too colourful, before he moved to LA, there was a kind of scratchy energy to the pictures he did, both the paintings he did at the Royal College of Art and these early etchings. And this one we're looking at now is one of the etchings he did to illustrate a selection of uh, fairy tales by uh, the Brothers Grimm. And Mm -hmm. this particular picture is from a story called The Boy Who Left Home to Learn Fear. It's about this young man who, he's not afraid of anything. So he travels around the world trying to find out what will scare him. And in this picture, there's a huge black cat leaping at him, obviously about to tear him apart. And yet he's sitting there as if nothing is happening whatsoever. Mm. So one of the things I see when I look at it is... Not just how much I love that picture, but how it saved me from bad taste when I was sort of a 20-year-old. <laughs> because, you know, growing growing up in the provinces in the sort of 60s and 70s, I didn't come across much what we can just uh, loosely call good art. Mm. And I guess like a lot of people my age, I, you know, I, I really like the pre-Raphaelites and I loved other sort of, frankly, rather naff pictures. And then mm-hmm. I discovered these early pictures of Hockney with their kind of their coolness and their hard edge. And um, it was like finding a, a life belt thrown to me in this sea of schmaltz. And I sort of clung to it and was pulled ashore. It's also an image that inspired the first novel I ever wrote. Mm. Um, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit this in case someone ever, ever finds a typescript anywhere. But I wrote a book called The Blue Guitar Murders. Okay. Inspired by this, this one single image, it is possibly one of the worst things ever written. Um, I, I truly believe that the idea of writing was to be as clever as you possibly could and impress everyone. And of course, if anyone had actually read it, they would just think that I was the most deluded fool. Um, and, and when did you come to realise that you did not consider this a, a good piece of writing? Before, I, before, before the end. You know, I never got to the end. It, oh, OK. It, it so while you were writing. Okay. But I have, um, so I gave it to several people because I was a deluded fool. And in fact, recently I, I made contact with someone I hadn't seen for almost 30 years and I persuaded her to actually send me the TypeScript back so it could be, it could be burnt in the back garden. <laughs> and the, the, only, the only reason to publish it ever would be to, as a dire warning to arrogant young men, <laughs> that, um, that writing a good novel involves uh, in making yourself small and taking yourself out of the picture. And it's not, it's not about self-promotion. It's not mm. about being admired. It's about making something and stepping out of the way. But also you have to be brave enough 
to accept that if you do just write in your most natural and straightforward and egoless way, it might not be very good. But if you become obsessed with being a great writer with capital letters, then it can come out sort of weirdly strangled and pretentious. Is, is that what the problem you felt with the Blue Guitar Murders was? I love the way you say, I'm just going to sit down and write my natural, free-flowing voice, as, as, <laughs> as if it was as easy as that. Oh, it's not easy. No, it's not I think, easy. I think if you read a piece of writing and you think that's natural and free-flowing, then someone has worked really, really, oh, yes, really, yes. really hard on that. Yes. What it makes me think of is something that I say to students. Once a year I teach creative writing for the Arvon Foundation, but I often say to people... And this applies to the Blue Guitar Murders and to, to a lot of the things that people first write. When you start as a writer, you think it's about getting something out of your mind or out of your heart onto the paper. You think that's the function, to get this vision down on paper. And eventually it starts to dawn on you, if you're going to be any kind of writer, that the reader does not give a damn about what's in your mind or in your heart and therefore has no way of judging how well you've got it onto the paper. The only thing they care about is what's on the paper. So you've got to say to yourself, what's in my mind and my heart might be useful material, but ultimately it's of no great value. All that matters is whether that thing that I put on the paper profoundly touches all the strangers who read it. You've got to make this world on the paper and hand it over and step away. Mm. And it either works or it doesn't. Yes. When I wrote a novel a few years ago, I, mm. I got so frustrated with myself that I wrote on a bit of paper, just tell a good story and just mm. stuck it above my computer. I had a similar thing for a while above my desk, which just said, don't explain. Mm. Um, if you write something and you need to justify it or explain it or give, give someone the context, then it hasn't worked. It's got to stand up on its own legs. Yeah, definitely. I'd quite like to come to one of your creative writing courses. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll sneak in at the back. How does the process start for you then? In I know you you teach other people and you are a very um, experienced and accomplished writer now, but do you still find it hard to start a new novel? I just stumble around in the dark, desperately trying to find anything. And when you find that happens with writing specifically, do you turn to art again or music? Do you panic or do you just quite calmly go and do something else? Oh, I quite often panic. <laughs> it would be great, wouldn't it, to say what I've When I can't write, I simply turn to painting. I mean, some, yeah. sometimes I just pace up and down like an ill-tempered bear in my cage. Mm -hmm. You can never tell how honest writers are being when they talk about their process, can you? So I don't know how it is for many writers, but for me, I've come to terms with an unpleasant truth that if ideas came easily then they are probably ideas that someone else has had quite often. Mm -hmm. And I think the best ideas come after a long and uncomfortable period during which you really feel you're going absolutely nowhere. And you've got to push aside the simple, easy ideas and wait for something, I think, genuinely peculiar to come along so that you know when you grab hold of it, you think, that's mine. No, mm -hmm. no one else will have thought of this ridiculous idea let's make this my own let's move to your last object now which is an oil painting called river evening by taishan, taishan why is this important this is the only thing i've ever bought from a gallery in london it didn't cost as much as a car but it certainly cost more than a few washing machines <laughs> i saw some of taishan's prints and i thought they were amazing but then i saw this 
painting. And of course, the difference between prints and painting is the, the physical surface, the sort of the lumps and bumps of the paint on it. And I, mm. I, fell, in, I fell in love with it and I just realised I, I had to have this object subsequently I was asked to do a programme on Radio 4 in which I talked to an artist and I went and had a conversation with with Ty and we got on incredibly well it was very rarely have I had a conversation with a complete stranger and found that we agree about so much so Mm. so that that sense of immediate communion sort of radiates from the picture Mm. but the reason I love the picture itself um there's a lot of very broad brush strokes, which when you you get in close, they look like a very satisfying abstract mess. And as you, but as you move back, they resolve into this something which is exactly right about foliage and clouds and the sort of quiet movement of a river. It feels utterly, utterly convincing. And Ty and I were talking and I was saying, it's the kind of painting which understands how the human eye works. We, we don't need everything given to us. We look at a small amount of information and if it's presented right, we're just suddenly there. We just pass through into that picture. It suddenly becomes real for us. Mm. And there's one little passage of paint in the middle of the, the painting. There's a smear of blue which comes across it. And when your eye rests on that, you know that it's the blue of the sky behind. You see it as the sky behind. And then your eye says, no, the blue is sitting in front. Then your mind says, no, the blue is behind. And there's this incredible pleasure of your mind seeing as paint on canvas at the same time as seeing it as the sky behind a tree Mm. in the evening above a river. And there's a wonderful quivering sense of being on that boundary, knowing it's both of those things and neither of those things. It's like we're passing in and out of that veil again. We're on this side of the painting and then we're inside of it and then we're out again. There's a kind of exquisite pleasure to that. Yes, I'm looking at the precise bit I think you're talking about now and I can see exactly what you mean. And I was wondering as you were talking and as you were talking earlier as well about this sense of a membrane that you can pass through or a veil, do you feel that just in your daily life, things that are there around you? all the time is that something that's present for you the sense of a veil is something that i really only get with with art particularly with writing and particularly with pictures mm. and as we said earlier it's not just images it's not like photographs i've ne- almost never looked at a photograph and felt myself pass into it um the photograph always feels like a sort of glossy surface that's why all the pictures that we're talking about now are physical objects mm-hmm. but they are also windows or, or doorways in, into something else, which is both on the surface and beyond it. Mm. And that is a theme in the porpoise, stories within stories, and it leads quite nicely uh, onto an extract from the audiobook, which I'd love to play now. Um, and in this bit, Angelica, who is trapped by her father, escapes to her literary and mythical worlds. So let's have a listen to that now. She has no one with whom she can share these stories. She is both teller and listener. She forgets sometimes where the page ends and her mind begins. She recounts these tales to herself in idle moments, inevitably changing them a little every time, and comes to believe in some occult way that these are stories of her own invention, that she is bringing these lives into being, as if she is one of the fates, those supernatural women who make and cut the thread of life. She is the abducted Helen, sitting high in the Trojan citadel, weaving her great purple web of double fold, 
the tapestry which describes the many battles of the horse-taming Trojans and the brazen-coated Achaeans, so that it is hard to tell whether she is simply describing the scenes far below her chamber window or whether she is creating them. Who in any case can say what is real? The Trojan War, Helen's Tapestry, or this other quiet room in which we are recreating those scenes in our own minds? That was The Porpoise, read by Tim McInerney and written by my guest, Mark Haddon. I have to say, I, I did more of this on audiobook than I have done for many other books that I've read. I usually read just the book myself, but for various reasons, I need to do some of this on audiobook. And Tim McInerney does the best audiobook I think I've ever heard. He, he just reads this so perfectly. Did you find that or do you not really listen to the audiobooks? Quite often I find the audiobooks of my work hard to listen to, N- not because there's any fault in the reading itself, just because I have a voice in my head mm. and um, the character that someone has given to it just happens not to be mine. But there is something so seductive about Tim's voice. Mm. He doesn't have to act very much as well. The basic fabric of Tim's voice is so fantastic. This sort of rich, melodious double bass of a voice. You can just, you can give it anything. And I just, I could, I could, I could listen to him read the phone book for quite a while, frankly. (laughs) Just to go back to that passage again, I think that there are many amazing things in the Iliad, obviously, with that little image, which is often not drawn attention to, of Helen weaving a tapestry of the battle Mm. up up in the citadel. And throughout classical literature, there's a repeated image of women weaving and the power of women weaving. They are denied uh, many of the other pursuits of men, but they are allowed to sort of sit upstairs with the loom and make pictures. And yet there's repeated references to the fact that the, the pictures they make are much more powerful than the men around them give them credit for. Maybe those pictures that they're creating upstairs quietly on the loom are our lives. <laughs> and I love that, that the, the creepy frisson of that circularity. Yes, it reminds me of a very creepy image that I was horrified by as a child from a Roald Dahl book, It Might Have Been the Witches, in which a character gets trapped in a painting. And I remember being so gripped with horror by that as a child. But now you've put a much more positive spin on it, (laughs) uh, the way that we can move in and out of pictures and stories and that perhaps Helen was weaving the fates rather than the stories controlling her art, which is... Well, there's another image which appears in The Porpoise as well, which Angelica mentions. It's a vague memory of hers because she knows this... It's quite a famous story of a, a, a an ancient Chinese artist who's painting a long scroll painting for one of the emperors. I can't remember which one. He's kept prisoner while he's producing this artwork. And then towards the end of his work, he's painted this beautiful rocky scenery with caves and waterfalls, and he steps into one of the caves and vanishes. Hmm. So instead of, uh, like in the Roald Dahl story, instead of people being trapped in the picture, this is the opposite. Someone can paint a picture and use it as a way of escaping. Yes. Or in like cartoons where they draw a picture on the floor of a hole (laughs) and then jump into it. I always love that. Thank you so much for this very wide-ranging, fascinating and enlightening conversation. The porpoise is fantastic. But what's next for you? A long lie down or have you got something else sort of ticking away? I'm terrible at the long lie down. I find it absolutely (laughs) impossible. 
with a reference to what we were saying earlier, there's going to be more staggering around in the dark looking for something. Okay, well, I hope you find it. Thank Um, you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mark Haddon. Thank you. And just a reminder to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast and you'll get new free episodes twice a month. You can find us at sites like Acast, Spotify or via a podcast app on your smartphone. We're also on your Alexa-enabled device. And tickets are now on sale for our Penguin Podcast live event with Mallory Blackman at the Lowry in Manchester on the 31st of August. Diary of an Awesome Friendly Kid by Jeff Kinney Jeff Kinney's new book presents us with the diary of Rowley Jefferson, best friend of Greg, the original Wimpy Kid, and promises to be just as laugh-out-loud funny as the Wimpy Kid series. Most biographies about presidents and famous people start with a chapter called Early Life. Well, the problem is that I didn't meet Greg until the fourth grade, so I don't know a lot about what happened to him before then. I've seen a few photos hanging on the walls in Greg's house, and from what I can tell, he was a regular baby. And if he did anything important when he was little, you can't really tell from the pictures of him sucking on a pacifier, playing with a rattle, or getting his diaper changed. The audiobook edition of Diary of an Awesome Friendly Kid is available for digital download now.